and welcome again to the Strange Brew podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was Iggy Pop with Lust for Life, this time live from 2016 because I've got the then Iggy Pop lead guitarist and band leader Kevin Armstrong on the Strange Brew today to talk about his career with Iggy, David Bowie and a host of fantastic artists to tie in with his forthcoming tour with Tony Fox Sales. So let's hear my chat with Kevin. Kevin. Is that you, Jason? It is. Thank you for agreeing to speak with me. You're welcome. I'd spoken with Tony Fox Sales earlier this year, so we're getting uh, pretty close to the uh, the tour where you guys are playing Lust for Life. You're going over to Japan in late February and then predominantly UK and a bit of Ireland. When I was speaking to Tony, huge pedigree with Iggy, especially around that Lust for Life period. Yeah. But you've got a long association not only with Iggy, but David Bowie who helped to craft that album as well. Yeah, I go back with them from uh, mid-80s, yeah. You've also got a great band, I think Clem Burke's also on board as well. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that because I know Clem. I've met, met him a lot of times over the years, but we've never played together, so it's the first time, yeah. That'll be that'll be really great. He's, he's great, yeah. And your connection with Iggy, was that through David? It was initially, yeah, because my initial... A little bit of work with David in the mid-80s led on to him just asking me to turn up for an Iggy Pop recording session for for the Blah 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 record, so it it stemmed from there. And that was another album David was heavily involved with? Well, I mean, they co-wrote the songs, David produced it. As far as I know, was paying for it at the time, you know. I mean, I think Iggy didn't didn't have a record deal at that time, and, and it was just another of those points at which David was investing time in Iggy, you know. Yeah. So I got that impression. It was a bit of a bit of a low point for Iggy in his career, and uh, David was giving him a, a hand. Real Wild Child. That was one of the bigger hits from that period, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Could be Iggy's biggest single hit. I don't know. As a, as a single, I mean, obviously, you know, someone like Iggy has such a big cult following around the world, and so many famous songs. But I I think that in terms of commercial success or mainstream success, Wild One's probably the biggest. I could be wrong about that, but I think so. I'm a real wild one. Wild one. Wild one. Wild one. Wild one. Like a 
on Blah Blah Blah, David wasn't really in the band as such. It was more on the production and writing. No, he was just producing, yeah. He, he was in the producer's chair. That's what he was doing. And he sang some backup vocals. You can hear his, his voice on there. And there were other things he did, like little technical things that he, you know, that he made for that record or he got involved in. But mostly it was the, the music was just me and Dave Richards and Erdl Kazilke really made that record. Erdl really made 80% of it probably. He's a Turkish musician that uh, worked with David in Geneva for many years and it, and he used to use him for... Uh, Erdl's a very clever multi-instrumentalist, brilliant studio guy. And uh, Erdl, um, he did uh, Wild as the Wind with David and um, some other things too. But anyway, Erdl was heavily involved in blah, blah, blah. Yeah, making the music for it. By the time I arrived, a lot of it was done. I was just adding guitars to what, what they'd already done. David did some things like the song, blah, blah, blah. It's got all these little samples, fuzzy little samples of things and thrown out bits of Iggy's voice and things. And David did all that with this kind of, with a guitar pedal, you know, on the desk. Little things like that, but he didn't play anything else on the record. No. You went on tour with Iggy and his band. Were we involved as musical director, actually? Yeah, it was that, I mean, that after that album, it became clear once they signed it to A&M Records in America, it became clear there was going to be, have to be a, a tour. And I just got asked because I was the guy there at the moment, you know, uh, had done the record with him. And he just said, would you would you put a band together for me? Pretty much on the spot. And, that, and so that's what I did. I toured with him for a couple of years then with the blah, blah, blah thing. And then, uh, you know, second time around was from 2014 to 19. Same thing. You know, I just happened to get a call from him saying, hey, you still you still interested? Come and be my back. So I was just the right the right guy for the right moment. In that mid-80s period, I think not only was uh, Iggy involved with uh, Bowie, I think he was involved in in writing a bit with Steve Jones, who previously was in the Sex Pistols. I think Cry for Love was another track from that. Yeah, yeah, Cry for Love. Steve, I think that's, they maybe the Blah 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 sessions had started in LA or something. I think they wanted Steve to be the main guitarist on the record. For some reason, he couldn't come, he couldn't leave America. And so he couldn't be there. So I, I basically filled in for him. But the one track they did in America was Cry for Love, where he already, he played on that, yeah. Sex 
still I know what I'm dying to see In searching for a meaningful embrace Sometimes my self-respect took second place And I cried alone I did what my heart told me Cry for love Can't stand it when they scold me Cry for love On every salmon moment Cry for love Cause imitations Cry for love Cry for love Right! bands before this but one of your early groups that impressed me was a uh, local heroes sw9 okay <laughs> was that the group you had with matthew seligman as well yeah it was yeah it was really my first group local heroes was, was the first group i put together myself you know as a young man that's what that's what i did it was put up around uh, the fact that i was writing songs and i phoned up a guy called charlie gillett i don't know whether you remember who he is yeah or was yeah. he he had his own label over records he was instrumental in uh discovering Elvis Costello and Dire Straits and Lena Lovitch and all sorts of people, Ian Dury, and he was instrumental in the early career of all these people. And I knew who he was. I used to listen to him on the radio. And I called him up and got an audition to go and sing some some of my original songs in his office. And I just literally did that, put plonk down an amplifier and a guitar in his office, played him some of my own songs. As a young, you know, I was like 22. Was like, he signed me on the spot to Oval Records. He just liked something about me, you know, he just thought was good. And he, so he signed me. So Local Heroes came exactly out of that. I had a record deal and I suddenly needed a band to go on. So I met, he introduced me to Matthew, who was playing with Bobby Henry, a guy called Bobby Henry at the time. And uh, then a local drummer that, you know, was just a neighbour, somebody we knew. And that was Local Heroes. That was a little trio. Yeah. 
so Matthew and I, of course, lifelong friends from then, yeah. And some of that material now doesn't date, certainly in relation to the sound of the group as a whole. Competition, for example. I'm amazed you say that, and I'm really pleased because I've always felt that, you know, the original work that I have produced in my life, although it's a very niche and not, you know, never broke out, never had any success with it, it's still some of it, you know, was was a bit far reaching, you know, a little bit. Yeah, you know, that's what I was trying for, but it wasn't to be. I mean, I don't, I, in the end, I think I'm not the kind of temperament the kind of person who could have been, you know, had all the attention on me as a kind of, you know, artist or sort of thing. You're on vocals and fronting that, weren't you? Are we? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm fronting it. I mean, I've just, I made another solo album since then in, in recent years. So I've quite a lot of confidence in that area, you know, but I, I just think looking around, I just didn't have the temperament that would have coped with all the, all the vicissitudes of life as a rock star or something like that. I think when it came down to it, I wasn't prepared to go all in with that. So probably the role I've ended up as is like side guy or producer or band leader or guitar player suit suit my temperament a lot better. I think, you know, in the end, I'm not that I'm not that much of a kind of look at me, look at me kind of which you have to be. You have to sacrifice everything to be Iggy Pop or David Bowie. Everything else has to take a second place to that kind of ambition. And I don't. That's the one thing I think I haven't haven't got. Thanks for the compliment about local heroes because.
was it only a, a few years that you were playing in local heroes? It was a couple of years, and then it 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 changed into a sort of a. I took a break, and I kind of was with Matthew. We went to work with Thomas Dolby as his band for a while, and then I got another solo deal with EMI in the mid eighties, and I had a band called Bush Telegraph, which was a much more ambitious thing, and it was due to be a mainstream thing, and it was there was a lot of hoo ha around it and everything. But then that sort of imploded on itself at almost the same, you know, a couple of weeks later, I was introduced to David Bowie. So it just spanned me off into that direction. And, and it was enough of a lesson for me to say, oh, maybe this is maybe this uh, being a rock, trying to be a rock star thing isn't for me. Maybe I've got this other way of using my musical abilities, whatever it is, in a more productive way for, for others. And that's how it's turned out to be. The range of artists that you've collaborated with. It's a good range, aren't you? It's not bad, to say the least. Starting uh, off with uh, the great Thomas Dolby, but yeah. pivotal point in his musical journey and got yeah. tracks like Blinded Me With Signs, which set the tone for the yeah. 80s. But you were there at the beginning. I was very much involved in that, with him in that point. In fact, Blinded Me With Science is really a creation of, I mean, Thomas wrote the song, but the way that sounds is really a, a direct result of me and Matthew and Thomas playing together as a band. That really is, yeah. Yeah, so I was, I was lucky to be there. And I'm, I'm very lucky to have worked with some of those artists who are not, they're not the sort of uh, huge, they're not the huge cheesy t- end of the business. They're always interesting and sort of slightly left field, you know. There's Iggy, Bowie, Morrissey, Thomas Dolby, Sinead O'Connor, interesting people who, who you know, they're slightly left field. And that's not been a choice. That's been my natural way that I've been drawn into, yeah. You collaborated again with Thomas about a decade ago as well? Yeah, I did, yeah. We, we, we did, we did a, he, did, he did an album, he was doing an album called A Map of the Floating City, which is an excellent Thomas Dolby album. It really is a, a fantastic record. And, uh, and he called me up and I went and played a few bits and pieces on it in studios. And then uh, he wanted to do an American tour. So we did a 2012, we did a, a whole American tour with him and that was the first time in, in ages again as a trio with the drummer Matt Hector who later came on with me with Iggy Pop but it was just me Thomas and Matt and that was a very enjoyable experience to go and back on tour with him in 2012 we were a lot older you know we've got less uh, less to prove but more ability so so there's a very much more supportive and creative energy that was really great yeah and an artist as well creatively who is always pushing the boundaries in a melodic way that is accessible. Yeah. When you started working with him in, in that early 80s, was it clear just how special he was as an artist? Oh, it was, yeah. I mean, he the, the, the album that you, the Local Heroes album yeah. uh, that you're talking about, Thomas came up and played, Matthew introduced him as a synthesizer player for that, a couple of tracks. Wow. So he plays on a couple of the tracks on that record. Matthew brought him along, said, you've got to meet this guy. He plays electronic stuff. And, and he came along and he contributed to a couple of the songs on that record. And I thought what he did then was really special. I thought, wow, this guy's really a cut above. He's he's really interesting. And then when when he began to pick up some success and had a big deal and all the rest of it, he wanted me to go and work with him. I jumped at the chance because I knew I'd learned stuff from him. He's, he's really clever. He's great. I mean, he's not a spontaneous musician. He's not a jammer. He's not, he's not able to slot in with everything straight away. But his, his uh, creative focus in the studio and the way he composes is really, really interesting, really top-notch, you know, very, very good.
getting the call for David Bowie, I mean, I've, I've spoken to a, a number of people who have been badged sidemen as such, and sometimes they don't necessarily know what session they're going in for. Was that the case with David? Uh, it was, yeah. We, we we were told to turn up at Abbey Road. We weren't even told who was coming. We just got a tip from somebody at EMI saying, go to Abbey Road, take a guitar, you'll meet other musicians there, somebody's coming to do a session. I can't tell you who it is. <laughs> so it literally was a bit cloak and dagger like that until he walked in the door. And then, yeah. Was that for Absolute Beginners? It was. It was for the demos, Absolute Beginners. He was there to do Labyrinth soundtrack stuff with Jim Henson and the Muppet people for Labyrinth. And at the same time, he did a little demo session upstairs for Absolute Beginners in, in Abbey Road 3. And we, that's where that was our session. So we put together a couple of songs for the Absolute Beginners soundtrack. And then as a direct result of that, he asked me to do the Live Aid band because he'd already been asked by Bob Geldof at that point to get involved in Live Aid. Was Rick Wakeman on that Absolute Beginners session as well? Yeah, he was, there. Yeah, he was yeah. and Not on the first one. The first one was just a demo session at Abbey Road. Right. It moved to Westside, to Clive Langer's studio, a few weeks later, a couple of weeks later, for the actual session. So, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't demo, it was the real thing. So all the recordings for that soundtrack were done over a, a few days. So a lot of artists were in the studio at the same time. Jerry Dammers and, and an orchestra, Gil Evans brought up, you know, had a big band and David. So Rick Wake, Wakeman was definitely there. He was definitely on Absolute Beginners, yeah. So you've got the demo of Absolute Beginners, yeah. Yeah. then you've got Live Aid, and then you've got the full recording. Is that how it spanned out? No, 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 no. We had the demo of Absolute Beginners, right. then the recording of Absolute Beginners. Right. And in between that... I got to meet him with Mick Jagger and David to plan Dancing in the Street. And that was done at the same day as Absolute Beginners was recorded. Right. Tack, tack, Dancing on the Street onto the end of that session. So it was just done very quickly then. And the video was made that same night as well. So the day Absolute Beginners was recorded and the song That's Motivation for, the, for that soundtrack and Dancing in the Street and that Dancing in the Street video, they were all done on the same day. And then Live Aid followed that. Dancing in the Street, the video for that's iconic. Was it clear that it was it was going to be a bit of a fun track? <laughs> I mean, nobody knew what was happening. It was a very exciting whirlwind, that whole session with, with all those people in, that, in the studio that day. At the end of the day, after a long day's work in the studio, we all get asked to go over to Docklands and watch David and Mick make this thing. So we were all standing around there in the background, you know, watching them ponce about in the <laughs> Docklands. And uh, so none of us had any clue what that would look like in the end or what it was for or anything, really. It was just a kind of like a treat to go and watch them do something <laughs> at the end of the day. Uh, but it, obviously, it, since then, it's become a you know an iconic video because it's so crazy, you know, so camp and so silly. But because it's for charity, everybody forgives them. <laughs>
going back to Live Aid then, it was not just that you played in Live Aid, you were responsible for having to put together a group for David for Live Aid, is that right? Yeah, I was asked, I was asked to put together the band for him, yes, yeah, so I did, so it was... You know, the, it was Neil Conti from Prefab Sprout because I'd been working with Prefab Sprout as well with uh, with Thomas producing them. So it was Thomas and Neil Conti, which was an obvious thing. Matthew as an obvious choice because yeah. we all knew him. My old girlfriend Claire Hurst playing saxophone for the Bell Stars, and then the two the two singers I didn't know, Tessa and, and Helena. They they came via David, I think, and Pedro was a friend of ours as well. Yeah, so yeah, I, I put the band together for him. It only meant you pick up the phone and say, do you want to play with David Bowie? Yes. It wasn't anything special. Magic moment. Yeah. Did you have nerves or was it just that you yeah. were fully into it? And well, We were fully into it. By then we'd done some rehearsals at Bray Studios and we knew what we were going to do. But obviously it was extremely exciting that day. I mean, it was. It was extremely unusual in everybody's life that day. Of course it was. We were young musicians. We were all Bowie fans. And suddenly we were up there and, my, you know, I knew my deputy headmaster who told me my guitar playing exploits would amount to nothing and leave me in a life of ruin would be watching, choking on his glass of Wincarnis, you know, watching me play with the biggest rock star on the planet, along with a billion other people. Amazing. amazing. It's just amazing. Yeah, it was. And very gracious to introduce you and the rest of the band. He didn't have to do that, did he? No. But that's quite typical of him, actually, uh, to, to thank us in that way, because he knew very well that doors would open for all of us in, in a way, having had that association. Of course he did. And that was his way of giving us something back for that because we didn't get any money for it. It wasn't paid work. I'd like to thank and introduce my band who got together so quickly to do this show for me. I'm forever in their debt. Lead guitar, Kevin Armstrong. Bass guitar, Matthew Seligman. On percussion, Pedro Ortiz. On drums, Neil Conte. On saxophone, Claire Hurst. Along vocals, Helena and Teresa Spring. And on synthesizers and keyboards, the very brilliant Thomas Dolby. I'd like to dedicate this song to my son, to all our children, and to the children of the world. I, I could be king, and you, you could be my queen, for nothing could drive them away. How we can beat them just for one day. We could be heroes just for one day. And I, well, I wish I could swim like dolphins, like dolphins can swim. Yes, we love us, and that is that. 
Another fantastic artist is Sandy Shaw. Yeah. You wrote quite a few tracks on her album, Hello Angel. I think I Love Peace yeah. It's one of the highlights for that. How did the collaboration with Sandy happen? I can't remember how I met her. I honestly can't remember. I mean, for a while, I got involved in Buddhism via her. I can't remember how. I think, again, it was just a phone call from somebody at Rough Trade or something saying she's, she needs a guitar player, she needs a collaborator. Really can't remember exactly, but that's that's what happened with that. You were also involved a bit on the production side as well. Is that correct? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't rem- I can't remember now. I think there was one or two tracks I contributed production to for that. There was a lot else going on at that time in my life. I was, a, I was playing with a lot of people, a lot of sessions, a lot of things. Sandy did become a friend. I mean, she is officiated at my wedding. Wow. My wife of twenty eight years, and I have. Uh, Sandy was a. Uh, she gave gave us away. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. What was she like to write with? Sandy, very easy. She's very easy. She's an easy collaborator. And again, it's something amazing for me because I sort of had a crush on her as an eight-year-old watching her on top of the pops. By the time I met her, she was in her 40s, I guess.
five years have Paul McCartney's demos come out for Flowers in the Dirt. Really? I had no idea about that, Jason. There's a clutch of songs oh. which you've rightly accredited on Am I? for the demos of that, including great material that he was producing at the time with Elvis Costello. There's a song called Go Like Candy. There's a song, Her Brave Face. Yes, My Brave Face. That was one of them. My Brave Face. So Like Candy, My Brave Face. And there's probably, there's probably a couple of others. It was a very short involvement mine with Paul McCartney, but I'd be more than interested to hear those because the final record that came out bore no trace of those kind of performances, I don't think. Is that is that an official release of some kind? Yes. Is it? Yes. Well, I've got no idea. I need to get my wife to register those things straight away. Yes, yeah, it's, it's part of the Flowers in the Dirt special edition. Yeah. The first time that you played with him, that was for TV, wasn't it? Yeah, for on The Last Resort, um, it was... Um, with Steve Naive and Pete Thomas from, from Elvis's band, uh, and a guy called Steve Lawrence, who's a friend of mine from LA, who's a, who was playing bass. And we, we, were the, we were the house band on the Jonathan Ross Last Resort show. So we played with all the artists who came on live as guests. And he was the last in the series, was featured him. And I think it was the first, his first live TV in 20 years or something. So we got to play with him all day in the studio. He, he really enjoyed it, playing with the band all day which is what we used to do with some of the artists, come in and play with them all day. And then it was broadcast completely live. And, uh, and then I got a call from him a few days later after the end of the series saying, come and play in my band. And I thought it was a brilliant opportunity. I squandered it in the end because I didn't last very long. We didn't kind of mm. click as people away. I don't know for what we, I mean, well, I do know for what one particular thing that upset him was I mentioned the Ruttles in the studio. <laughs> the fellow told me that was a complete no-no and I didn't, I didn't get that. So, so I didn't last long, but it was interesting. I would really think it's unfinished business. I'd love to play Paul McCartney again. I don't know whether I'll ever get the chance now. But. There's certainly nothing wrong with the recordings that you did with him. Thanks. <laughs> Potentially, you were in the line to be his main guitarist for quite a while, and it just didn't play out. It just didn't work out. I was, again, I think I was, I think I just wasn't focused on him in the way no. that I should have been at that point. Maybe I just wasn't quite grown up enough to sort of uh, play that role uh, completely, and he sniffed that out and just thought, well, I, I don't need you. But I was just a little bit insecure in myself or or uh, trying to do too many things or still trying to spread myself thin and not paying him the homage you really have to do. I think you have to pay him very close attention when you're his his musician. And maybe I maybe I, squand- I just squandered it. I, that's what I feel. I feel slightly, he's not the easiest person in the world, that's for sure. And other people will tell you that maybe. But I think I definitely missed a trick not not being able to uh, (laughs) play that in the right way. Here lies the powder and perfume The pretty clothes are scattered round the room And it's like candy Here lies the lipstick and the face the colored tablets keep it all in place And it's like candy So like candy What did I do to make a girl like candy? 
picture of a girl Her arms are tied around that lucky guy And it's so like candy And in her eyes a certain love I thought I'd seen the last of Also around that period, we've got Tin Machine as well. Yeah. Another of your tracks, Run. Yeah. Was Run another example of where David got onto kind of an element of a one of your tracks and then incorporated? Yeah, it was just something I was playing at a rehearsal or sound check, and he just, on two occasions, the two the two co-writes I have with him both came about that way. He just was, he was just listening to me play guitar and just went, oh, what's that? You know, he just fancied something I was doing and said, can I have that, please? <laughs> So that was that was it, yeah. So it was a song I'd written in 1980 or something. Run was the, the basis of it for, for my Charlie Gillett period. Yeah. You know, it was one of the things that would have come out on one of the albums on Oval had I, had I continued that. And it was it was just something I used to play for pleasure to warm my guitar amp or something. And he fancied it. And of course, Tim Machine was the first time I met Tony. Yeah. yeah. Was that over in Switzerland? Uh, initially it was, yeah, same place we did blah blah blah. Same place, Bowie, because he lived in Lausanne at that time. He was always recording at Mountain in Montreux. I just got a call saying, "Come, you know, stick a guitar in a bag. Come and come and play with this band. I've got a band now. Come and play with the band." So again, Tin Machine album was a lot of it was done with just the three of them, with Hunt and Tony and Reeves. 
but I was there for the creation of some of the tunes, like uh, Under the God, Heaven's in Here, I Can't Read, which we did in Nassau, subsequent sessions, you know, because we moved to the Bahamas and did a chunk there. When I spoke to Tony, very proud and complimentary of that period, and I think Tin Machine sometimes gets a bit of an unfair rap. It's very easy to badge it as something that didn't work out, but it still holds its own. It's, it's always a matter of opinion, isn't it? Yeah. You know, that it's just people's opinion. And some a stellar career like Bowie's with so many highlights in it and so many so many flashes of genius along the years, even his him, him having an off <laughs> period was better than a lot of people's best efforts, you know. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's all a matter of degree, isn't it? I, I certainly didn't appreciate it quite at the time. I, I thought, wow, what is this band? It's like a sort of sonic fight between everybody and it was like a bit retro the way it was so hard rock and he had to shout over it all. And But actually listening back to it now, I can see how it was majorly influential on so many other bands. And uh, it's great. It's great to have been involved in it from that point of view. Were you involved in the live dates as well? Yeah, I did a, lot. I did a first tour. Yeah, where he did small clubs like the Roxy in LA, the Kilburn National Ballroom. We did small. He wanted deliberately to make a fuss. So you do the Roxy in LA with David Bowie and Tin Machine, and you literally have the police shutting off the th- place from three blocks around and people coming in through the down the drain pipes and then through the windows and everything else. It was really fantastic, yeah. Really exciting.
the names keep on coming. I've read that Morrissey actually was sounding you out for the, the Smiths or just the period just after the Smiths. He did. He asked me to join the Smiths, yeah, he did. He, that's the first time I met him. I got a call to go and meet him. I went to meet him at Rough Trade for a cup of tea and uh, he asked me to join the Smiths. I turned him down because I just said on the grounds that it wasn't the Smiths without Johnny. That's what That was my opinion of it, what he was trying to do. And when I did get to work with him, it's because he became a solo artist. And then I got asked a year or so, so later by Clive Langer to come and play on what became the Boner Drag record. And so I did. Then I did because I wanted to. Yeah. And then I, I got to co-write some songs with him too. Yeah. There's some great material from that period. Yeah. Piccadilly, Polare was um, yeah. one of the key tracks, a fantastic single. So was that all your work in relation to the sort of the backing of that? I wrote some guitar pieces before those sessions and I gave them to him because I figured that listening to the Smiths, as I had for many years, that must have been the MO that him and Johnny went by because Johnny's guitar pieces are so complete. If you took the vocals off them, they're really like quite finished, quite polished pieces of music already without any vocal line. And I figured if I took that approach, just gave him some guitar instrumentals, which I had worked on, then uh, he, he could do the same thing. And, and, and that's what he did. He picked up three of them and worked on them and, and we split them 50-50. That's it. Spoke to Mark Nevin quite a few times who worked with him. I think just after yeah. your period, Mark was talking about how shy Morrissey was. Was that your experience? Well, he did. He, he was rather reclusive, yeah. I mean, I don't know whether you know about outside studios where we worked. You can look it up. Look up Bookend Manor. Ah, yeah. Bookend Manor is an abandoned stately home that was originally established in the 12th century for the Bishop of Reading or something. And it was owned by Alvin Lee from 10 years after then. It was owned by Dave Gilmore. And then when Clive and Alan bought it, and then afterwards Trevor Horn, but Clive and Alan bought it, and it had this incredible studio. We were there with Morrissey for a month, living together, the band, and doing the sessions, Clive Lang and Alan and Stanley. And um, uh, we had visitors like Joan Sims, Mary Margaret O'Hara, um, Seymour Stein, uh, all sorts of people came and stayed over for weekends and we had meals, you know, we had big meals in the baronial hall and everything. We actually had a Ouija board session because <laughs> 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 Morrissey was, uh, you know, that, ha- that house is supposed to be haunted and Morrissey was genuinely spooked by that house and the vibe in that house. The Ouija board didn't read S-T-E. I can't remember. I think Andrew Parisi, the drummer, was, was, I think he was pushing. <laughs> I can't remember what happened, but there was a lot of drunken sort of stuff in that, in that house. And Morrissey was very shy. He stayed in his room a lot of the time. Although he, you know, hired a Princess Margaret's chef to cook everybody vegetarian food, he mostly existed on toast and tea when everyone else had finished eating. And uh, if he went, read one bad review, which he did, Ouija Board came out and there were more sessions at Hook End uh, afterwards for the other songs for Bone and Drag. And uh, that single got panned by the NME or something and Morrissey went to bed for three days. <laughs> so he's, a, you know, you know about Morrissey. I mean, everybody knows about Morrissey. He's a one-off, isn't he? Was it a case of you just didn't hear from him again and stopped working? Is that- yeah, you know, he trapdoored me at the end of that I don't know why. Again, it was like probably I just wasn't a good fit. Some people, you know, in this industry, when it's a creative collaboration, people want different things, especially big artists, famous artists. They want different things from what you can bring. And some of them want a close collaborator. 
Some of them want to leave you alone, and or, you know, so you just bring what you can bring, like Bowie did. And some of them, and Iggy, and some of them want a specific kind of very subservient somebody to just do what they want. And I think Morrissey possibly falls into that character. I don't know, but I just didn't, again, I wasn't cut out for him. You know, it's strange because just not everybody clicks, do they? I mean, with Bowie, it was never any problem. He literally, you can take the piss out of him. You know, you can actually, he was just so normal. Yeah. And you could be his friend, you, he, you know, and he, and he wasn't—he wasn't a fragile ego, right? So anything you bring, he was just wanted to absorb, and that's his genius, part of his genius. There are other people for whom they just want servile, somebody of a servile nature to work alongside, and whatever else I am, I'm just not going to be that.
you've also got that down as a co-write with um, David Bowie for Outside, the title track yeah. of his album. The element of that goes back again. It goes back to a song called Love is Essential, which is on the an early the Locals Heroes album. And that song was covered by The Passions when I was briefly in The Passions. Again, it was something I just playing a riff at a tin machine sound check or something. He said, let's do, let's work this up. And it became a song called Now. And we played it with Tin Machine Live on the first tour as we just, just sort of wrote it on the road and, and he did it. And then it wasn't until some time after, you know, maybe three years, four years, when he rang up and said, do you remember that song? It's now the title track of my new album. So come and contribute on that. So again, fantastic surprise, out of the blue, had no idea, very pleased. Did you actually play on David's version of that? Because I, I know that you were on Fruy's Architects Act. I don't think I did play on that song, no. I think that song was already finished. I think I played on... I, I did a day with him and Brian Eno in, in uh, London on that album, but on, I think I played on a couple of other tracks through these Architects' Eyes. Right. Parts Filthy Lesson, maybe. I just, you know, I, I contributed guitar to some other tunes on that record, but I think Outside itself was finished. He just played it to me and just said, this is finished. So when we get to the late 90s, 2000 to 2010s, who were you playing with in that period? Well, I was producing Keziah Jones. I produced right. four albums for him. He's an African artist who was big in France. And had, and I produced some artists for uh, in Europe. And I was doing a lot of studio work and a lot of production work, film music and music for commercials, you know, bringing up my kids. I, I just wasn't on the road. I was focused on a studio, I had my own studio, and I was kind of focused on production and composition and did that for a while. That spell was only broken by Sinead O'Connor, who asked me to tour in 2007. And then since then, there's been a lot of episodic touring with different people.
you worked quite a bit with Iggy in more recent years. Yeah, 2014, I got a call. After Ron and Scott had both died, they tried to keep Stooges going with James Williamson. And, yeah. and I just got a call. Weirdly, I just did a blah, 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 a sort of a tribute gig in a way. It was like a, a memorial gig for blah, blah, blah with Erdal Kazilke, the Turkish musician. Right. And Andy Anderson, the drummer from The Cure, who'd been in the blah, blah, blah band live initially. And um, a couple of other people, and we got we did a sort of biggie tribute thing at the ICA in London for that. It was suggested by a friend of mine called Tom Wilcox, who's a, just a shaper and mover guy who just seems to have these fantasy music projects and be able to fund them and get people together and do things. So we did that, and during the run up to that blah 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 gig, I called Henry McGrogan, uh, Iggy's manager, and said, "Would Iggy send his blessing to this event?" Kind of thing, because it's 25 years since blah blah blah. And Henry said, well, I don't know, he, might, he, he could send you a message or something. I just said to Henry, if he ever needs another guitar player at any time, you know, ha ha, sort of thing. <laughs> Never thought to hear back. And then um, lo and behold, he was watching that. They were keeping an eye on that thing. And then they asked me to put a band together for Iggy Post Stooges. And of course, I jumped at it. So, And I played with him 2014 to 2019. That must have been such a lot of fun because there's a really especially was. some of those festivals as well where you've got right. huge amounts of people enormous amounts we i mean we opened for metallica for three nights in mexico city in front of sixty thousand a night uh, and it was common to play for between 20 and fifty thousand people a weekend uh, in, in festivals it was really great it was great and we had real fun brilliant to go the second time round again with all that gap in between and all the times when you go to yourself, oh, if only I could do that again, that Iggy thing, I could do that so much better this time. And then to get to actually do it and get it right and go around the world again was, was fantastic. Yeah, a rare pleasure. And then in more recent years as well, you've got your own solo album run and yeah. reconnected some of the material that you've collaborated on with other artists as well. Yeah, I covered the Morrissey songs and the Bowie songs and, and uh, for, for Run. And I, I'd made those recordings over a period of about six years and then finally pulled it together. After David died, I just thought, well, this is, I've got to pull this together. And I felt like I've got to do something creative. His, his inspiration just makes you think, well, you haven't got a lot of time. you just got to try and do something. I now keep stuff on the boil. I've always got some project of my own in the pipe somewhere. I've got quite a lot of material waiting to come out now, which I'm not in a hurry to do. I don't rush it. I make sure it's finished to my satisfaction, but I was very pleased to get that record out. And then in recent years, now I've stopped playing with Iggy as well, and David died, I've written a book which is just about to come out, and I've also um, started doing one-man one man shows, which are basically just uh, stories and little film clips, little readings, some songs, and things like that. So uh, I, I really enjoy doing those, and I do those once in a while. I've got one coming up in the Isle of Wight in January. You certainly do those songs justice. Thank you. He knows I'd love to see him. The Morrissey song, you do really well. Thank you. How was it doing your own versions? I really enjoyed doing those. I mean, it was, again, they're sort of, you know, they're partly my work, aren't they? They're, they're original songs that I started. So in whichever direction they want to do it. I, I mean, I thought it just made sense to do them for a first solo album of mine in so many years, I just thought it's good to put those on, to hook people in who might not know anything else. Say, look, I wrote these songs with Bowie Morrissey. And so I've got very few collaborations like that to draw on. So uh, subsequent work will be all just original new work and have to stand and fall on its own merits. But I really enjoyed those uh, doing those, yeah, very much, yeah. I've read that Lustful Life Tour 
you'll actually also potentially be playing some tracks that you've played on with David Bowie more broadly. I think there might be a peppering of those, you know, my my and Tony's uh, history and some of Clem's history as well. So I think we might delve into all sorts uh, there. We'll have to see. I mean, it's it's this is a band that's never convened yet, so we will have a short time to do it. Everyone's doing homework like crazy to prepare for it, and by the time we get together, we'll see what we'll see what transpires. But it'll be it'll be fun for sure, yeah. And Japan as well. Oh, I love going to Japan. I've been four times. This will be my fifth visit there. Oh, it's always highly memorable and a, a remarkable place to go. I'm really looking, I'm not looking forward to the flight so much because <laughs> it's a long bloody way. But it's a very amazing place to visit, and I love going there to play. Kevin, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. I wish you all best with the tour and much more. Thank you, Jason. See ya. He knows. He knows. Oh, I think he does. for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time 
All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.